0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Beep. Beep.
1: Hi everyone, this is Dan Ambinder here. On behalf of all of us at Nerds, Amit Goyal and I are honored to bring to you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. This series was developed by the CardioNerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America, It was created by 30 trainees and 16 faculty experts with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Mentz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. A special thank you to Dr. Judy Bezanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance.
0: Over the coming several months, we will be releasing short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice friends in today's introductory episode cardio dr mark belkin and dr natalie tapascar will discuss the 2022 aha acc hfsa guideline for the management of heart failure with writing committee chair dr paul heidenreich they discuss how one gets involved with the guideline writing committee the nuts and bolts of the guideline writing process pitfalls and utility of the term gdmt background behind inclusion of value statements potential omissions from the document clinical uptake of recommendations, and anticipated changes for the next iteration. And with that, let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cardio Nerds. My name is Mark Belkin, recent Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship graduate and now an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiologist at the University of Chicago. We are very excited to bring you the Decipher the Guidelines series focused on the recently released 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. We launched the series in May 2022 on the 200th episode of Cardio Nerds with the Journal of Cardiac Failure, or hashtag JCF family. Today, we are excited to kick things off with an interview with Dr. Paul Heidenreich, the chair of the Guidelines Writing Committee. But first, I want to introduce my co-host for this episode, Dr. Natalie Tapascar. Natalie is currently a third-year cardiology fellow at Stanford University. She's originally from the Chicagoland area, then attended medical school at Case Western University in Cleveland, and then completed internal medicine residency at the University of Chicago. She credits her interest in cardiology to being my intern during her first CC rotation, in which we took care of a sick cohort of advanced heart failure patients, including one patient awaiting heart transplant, whose wedding we attended in the hospital chapel while she was supported with a subclavian balloon pump. Of course, I'm exaggerating. I think other things led Natalie to be interested in cardiology as well. She was a star resident and following a chief resident year, she went to Stanford for her general cardiology fellowship. Her research interests include donor heart utilization criteria and best practices for management of cardiogenic shock and long-term ICU outcomes and she's currently applying for advanced heart failure fellowship. She's chosen the best career there is. So happy to have you here, Natalie. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much for that introduction, Mark. And of course, having you as my first CCU senior resident was definitely very influential in my decision to pursue cardiology and heart failure. I often joke that Mark is the hemodynamics master, and I want to be just like him when I grow up. I'm very happy to be here today and very honored to present our guest, Dr. Paul Heidenreich. Dr. Paul Heidenreich is currently a professor of medicine at Stanford University, the vice chair for quality in the Department of Medicine at Stanford, and the chief of medicine at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Chicago, after which he graduated from UCSF's internal medicine residency training program. He went on to complete cardiology fellowship at UCSF and obtained a master's in health services research from Stanford University. He's a practicing non-invasive cardiologist and a very active clinical researcher. He has extensive background in outcomes and health services research with a focus on the cost-effectiveness of new cardiovascular technologies, interventions to improve quality of care of patients with heart disease, and economic analyses. He has chaired the American College of Cardiology slash American Heart Association Task Force for Performance Measures and the Task Force for Data Standard. He has also served as chair of the AHA Council for Quality of Care, And outcomes research, and the AHA's Get With The Guidelines program. He's also a co author on more than 550 publications. In addition to his impressive research career, Dr. Heidenreich is also a very highly lauded educator. He's a two time recipient of the Clinical Divisional Teaching Award at Stanford University and a recipient of the E. William Hancock Cardiovascular Medicine Teaching Award. I myself have had the privilege of reading Echoes with him in the VA Echo Lab and have learned a great deal from his expertise. Even with all that he does, he still manages to find time to provide feedback and teaching pearls on all of the on-call echoes we do on the weekends at the VA. So thank you so much for all that you do, Dr. Heidenreich, and thank you for being with us here today.
3: Well, thank you, Mark and Natalie. It's an honor to be speaking with you today. Yes, welcome. Thank you for being here.
0: Dr. Heidenreich, we have listeners of this podcast from across the experience and training spectrum, including many students, residents, fellows, and early career practitioners. To start, can you give us a brief overview of how and when in your career you got involved with the cardiology societies such as AHA
3: and ACC and your path towards chairing the most recent guidelines? Sure. So I started, I'd say, as a fellow when I joined the AHA and ACC and uh, tried to go to as many meetings as possible. I know that's always a balance uh, with your life outside of work. But um, this was, of course, all pre-Zoom, and I wanted to get to know all the various leaders in the field. And there really was no other way to do that other than to go to the national meetings. So I think through that, as well as publishing my own work, I first got involved with some committees, was able to get on, I'd say I started with data standards, which you may say is not the most interesting of uh, committees, but um, I think you got to see how these organizations worked, what the process was for putting out documents, and then over the years was able to both chair some of those, get involved with performance measures, um, and then ultimately asked to chair the recent heart failure guidelines. So I'd say it was a, a combination of both doing my own uh, research, getting that published, meeting other leaders in the field and then showing your interest in being involved with committees. And then I think most importantly, when getting tasks assigned, completing those in a timely manner. Thank
0: you. That's very helpful, especially as someone who's just starting my early career. I mean, I think for many of our listeners.
3: Yes, I'll say, right. I think, again, it is it is a balance. I think you um, you want to volunteer for some things, but not too many. And I think it's always best to volunteer for a few and get those done uh, quickly and well, rather than to agree to so many things and never getting them done on time. Um, so so be very, I'd say, um, thoughtful in uh, in taking on these volunteer opportunities.
2: Okay, that's great advice, Dr. Heidenreich. So basically, don't volunteer for more than you can handle. So our next point is that We all know guidelines often serve as the foundation for teaching, testing, and most importantly, clinical decision-making. However, many of us don't actually know much about the process by which guidelines are created. Can you review the process by which the committee is formed, literature is reviewed, drafts are completed, and final decisions are made?
3: Yes, happy to. And I'll say over the years, it's become highly structured as run by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association. Um, so, first, there's a joint committee on clinical practice guidelines that oversees all the guidelines. They decide when it's time uh, to update a guideline or whether that's focused or a complete redo of the guidelines. Um, and they pick the chair and vice chair. And the uh, some of the requirements are that that chair can have no relevant industry relationships um, while the vice chair can. And uh, by that, they mean, if that Industry is involved in any way with heart failure. You could not have any funding from them, including grant funding. You obviously can't be taking payments for consulting and things like that. So, once those two people are formed, and, and it's important that they, I think, can get along well. And in this case, Dr. Ikham Boskurt was the vice chair because uh, the two of you are going to be working very closely together, likely for the next two years uh, to put this together um and then after that we select or i'd say the ACC and AHA and in this case the HFSA sort of select uh the other members of the committee and um it's a very challenging process because we have to balance so many things obviously you want to have experts in the various aspects in this case of heart failure whether that's transplant device placement but we also want to balance uh other factors gender a uh, race, ethnicity, region of the country, we don't want to have more than two people from any one institution. Um, we want to have non-physicians included, such as, in our case, pharmacists, as well as patient representatives. And then keeping that to a manageable number, I think, is very challenging. And then the final challenge we have is that over half of the committee must be free of relevant relationships with industry. Um, So that process takes, I'd say, several, often several months uh, to finally uh, select the committee. Um, Once we're selected, we're meeting at least twice a month. And this started right about at the time of uh, the COVID pandemic. We had one in-person meeting in January 2020. And then we uh, were meeting by Zoom roughly every two weeks. Um, I think the chair, the vice chair and other staff are meeting weekly to discuss the process Um, assignments are made Um, we have someone who is an expert but also obviously with no relevant relationships with industry for a particular area come up with their recommendations for that area Um, and we have a second person who's a reviewer for those so we go through the whole heart failure spectrum across the committee each one coming up with recommendations. And then we'll take turns presenting those to the rest of the committee on the call, and you'll get feedback from everyone else. Um, we'll revise those recommendations. Then and that process probably takes at least a year to get through. And then at the end of that process, we have a draft. We then send it out for review. and there's a very detailed uh, review process. We have expert reviewers. As well as a public review process, we then get comments back, and then the chair and vice chair need to respond to those comments about whether or not they're being included. In this case, I think we had well over a thousand comments with which to respond uh, but it's good it it does help improve the process and once in a while will make us think of something we didn't include and then and come up with a new recommendation for that area and then after that is all done, gone back to the committee, they're in agreement. Then we have a formal vote um, where people vote offline. And uh, we, we want to get at least 80% agreement. That's our goal. Uh, 80% of the committee voting in favor of a particular recommendation. And uh, then finally, once that is all done, then it will go to the senior leadership, the organizations for approval prior to publication. In our case, that whole process, uh, I think, took about two years and three months. So it would be great if we could speed that up, but there's there's so many processes involved uh, that it it is a challenge, I think, to do it faster than that. Of course, that, that will be our goal. Wow. What a monumental
0: undertaking that sounds like and quite a kind of puzzle to put together from establishing the committee to getting through that whole spectrum of heart failure and private comments, public comments. sounds uh, exhausting, but definitely a thorough process and needed.
3: Yes. And, and you can also imagine there's literature being published all the way through. And at some point you have to say, OK, we can no longer consider any new literature. And, you know, we try to push that date off <laughs> as long as possible so the guidelines are as relevant as they can be. And so it's. In some ways, it, by definition, should be a living document, right, because we're constantly learning new things and wanting to adjust our recommendations based on those. But again, it's another, I think, another example of often how complex it is to to put these guidelines together.
2: Dr. Heidenreich, you mentioned that there are patient representatives in the committee. Can you tell us a little bit more about how those patients are included in the committee?
3: Yes. So we use particularly the American Heart Association since they have a lot of patient involvement, but they could come from anywhere. We wanted to have at least, I think this time, two patient representatives. We do hear their stories um, and what's important to them. Um, So we want to make sure we hear sort of directly from patients in the process. Obviously, all of us, all, all of the active clinicians have heard from their own patients, but I think it's very helpful To hear their stories in the process. Um, And then they would listen to everything. They would vote just like anyone else. We typically didn't have them be the primary reviewer for a particular area, but often would be a secondary reviewer, and I think provided a lot of feedback on how uh, the current recommendations could be understood by lay persons, and uh, I think helped with a lot of the language. So, and again, this is an important part of committees going forward by the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology.
0: Yes, definitely. I think that's a, that's a great addition to kind of the whole guideline writing process. And so happy to hear that the ACCHA and HMSA included that in these guidelines. Um, related to our last point on the emphasis of guidelines, um, we interviewed Dr. Milton Packer last year. And when I used the term guideline-directed medical therapy, he responded
1: with the following audio. I never, ever use the acronym GDMP. Never. I never use the phrase guideline-directed medical therapy. And the reason is I don't know what it means. If you, re- if you say, oh, I'm going to do therapy according to the guidelines. Well, okay, read the heart failure guidelines. They're about 160 pages long. They contain five to 600 recommendations. I guess if you followed five of those 500 recommendations, you would be doing guideline-directed medical therapy. What is guideline-directed medical therapy? I have no idea. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it consists of. I don't know what the building blocks are. I don't know what doses to achieve. Where do you see the phrase GDMP used? Well, it's most often used in patients' medical records. And that's because I'm going I'm I'm to get some flack for this. So someone in the cath lab who is a, an expert in structural heart disease has tried to fix something and says, oh, well, gee, I can't fix it. What's the plan for the patient? GDMP. I have a patient with uh, atrial fibrillation I'm going to try to ablate. Oh, well, I can or I can't. What's the plan for the patient after the procedure? GDMP. GDMP is an acronym which directs the person who reads it in no particularly useful manner, it means whatever you want it to mean. And the person who wrote it probably didn't give a lot of thought as to what they meant. And the person who reads it certainly does not have any clue what the person who wrote it meant. What what is GTMP? I don't know. Gee, I know what I think. Represent the drugs that are foundational that reduce mortality. But that's based on clinical trials. That's not based on a guideline committee. I've written all sorts of editorials that have been unbelievably critical of the guideline process. I know there are cardiologists who view the guidelines as a biblical document written by prophets with incredible amount of wisdom and foresight. Well, I don't think there's ever been a guideline committee like that. Why do I read a guideline document? Well, because it just represents someone's opinion. And I like reading what people think. But is that opinion worth worship? There are people who worship Guidelines. They have religious ceremonies where they put the guidelines up on an altar and they make sacrifices to it.
0: How would you respond to this point of view and how do you use the guidelines, both heart failure and non heart failure focused, in your clinical practice?
3: Yeah, so I'll say that I I completely agree the GDMT term, guideline directed medical therapy, is very nonspecific, and in most situations, not very hopeful. Um, I'd never say to someone, a uh, colleague, oh, let's start that patient on GDMT. What are we talking about? What does that mean? Um, I do think it it has a use as a shorthand term for optimal medical therapy, which, you know, optimal, and then we're basically we're saying optimal per the guidelines, rather than spelling out, in this case now, we'd say the four life-prolonging therapies we'd like to have, I suppose if, if it are up to me and I got to pick the acronym, I would have said life-prolonging medical therapy. I want this person on life-prolonging medical therapy. That, it's not ideal. I think we should try to be as specific as we can um, whenever we can. But I think when there's such an interest in, in trying to do shorthand things for that, I think DMT will be around for a while. But again, I think maybe four pillars is a slight improvement where we're talking about Arnie beta blocker, MRA, and SGLT2 inhibitors. Regarding how I use the guidelines in clinical practice, I particularly when it comes to the life-prolonging medications, I want to make sure that those are addressed in every patient where they're applicable, either reasons showing that they are prescribed, or if for some reason I decide not to prescribe them, I make it clear in my notes why I'm not doing that ultimately, hopefully our electronic medical records will make that easier for us and uh, give us reminders and things about why or why not we don't have this. And I think there's ways that could be structured to make it easier for clinical practice to get that documentation in. But as a guideline comes out, again, whether it's heart failure or non-heart failure, if there are top uh, recommendations, which in, I'd say definitely ones that are life prolonging. think it's important that we state why we're not using them in addition to obviously trying to follow them wherever we can.
2: That's awesome. Thank you so much for that answer. And Dr. Heidenreich, you make life prolonging medical therapy sound so good. I want to be on that therapy. So um, the next question we have is about the value statements. So we noticed the new addition to the 2022 heart failure guidelines were these value statements, which were created for select recommendations where high quality cost effectiveness studies of the intervention have been published. So it's a very interesting and welcome addition to our field where novel targeted therapeutics are discovered at a seemingly much more rapid pace. And there's always a trade-off between the relative benefit and the cost. So can you discuss how this idea came to fruition and how the team identified which guidelines the value statements should be added to?
3: Yeah, I think great question. For many years, a lot of us in the ACCAHA and HFSA, I think, realized that we can't be completely ignoring cost. And uh, like the guidelines had done, I'd say up till maybe 15 years ago or 10 years ago, it wasn't an issue because we didn't have that many new therapies. All of our therapies were relatively inexpensive. It really wasn't an issue like, say, it might be an in oncology. But we knew that wasn't going to last. And to the a- ACC and AJ's credit, they decided about 10 years ago that we needed to start considering valuing the guidelines uh, as well as the performance measures that are put out. Uh, they're a subset of the guideline recommendations. And uh, they had, at the time, the head of the guideline task force, Jeffrey Anderson, and then myself, who was head of the task force for performance measures, to uh, co-chair a a group of experts in health economics and cardiology to make recommendations back to the ACC and AHA on how we should do this. Uh, So that document came out, uh, I think, about 2014 or so, and uh, said that the ACC and AHA should review on any guideline, uh, review the published data on value, on cost effectiveness, see and determine whether there is high quality evidence or not. And that would mean that you need to have some experts in health economics as part of the committee to help make those judgments. And then we would use some standard thresholds for determining what was good value, and intermediate value, and a poor value. And uh, we actually based those on World health organizations' thresholds at the time. they take a GDP per capita. If it was less than one GDP per capita per life year gained or per quality adjusted life year gained, that was a good value. So the United States at the time, it was actually close to about $50,000, $55,000. So that was also fit with the $50,000 per life year gain standard that had been floating around for a long time to say something was a high value. Something that was a low value was if it was three times that, so if it costs more than $150,000 per life year or quality-adjusted life year gained, and that's a poor value, and in between, we would say intermediate value. And so the thought was we would find the published data, we'd see if there was a consensus regarding whether it fit into one of those buckets, And we'd make a separate value statement independent of the recommendation. So it was important for the committee when they're looking at a new therapy to say, forget about cost as best you can and just think about is there a clinical benefit or not and how strong is that benefit? And so we'll have one on clinical benefit and then this other value statement that would go into the guideline. I'd say... We've had a few of these in past guidelines. There was a brief one about defibrillators in that guideline. There's also one in cholesterol with PCSK9 inhibitors. But for heart failure, we've had so much work out there that we've, for the first time, had a very large number of value statements just because of the large amount of high-quality work uh, that has been done in related to cost-effectiveness and heart failure. That's
0: very interesting and definitely a welcome addition to the guidelines, as you said, since we didn't have that for heart failure and there's so many new therapeutics. To clarify then, were the value statements only available then if studies had already been published for that specific therapy or did the committee have to collate that data on their own in any manner?
3: Yeah, great question. Um, we followed the, the recommendations that, we made or that I made with Dr. Anderson in that initial document that the ACCHA would not do their own cost-effectiveness studies. So we'd only look at what had been published, sort of analogous to we only look at published trials. We don't try to do any trials ourselves. Now, one could commission those down the road. There's no reason you potentially couldn't do your own studies like that. But no, we chose to only look at what had been published. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for going into detail on that.
0: Since the 2013 guidelines and the 2017 update, there has been seemingly exponential new information regarding the care of patients with heart failure. The updated heart failure guidelines have been released to much fanfare as they have done a comprehensive job of including and addressing seemingly all of the important new data points. And after hearing about how laborious this project was, many congratulations to you and and the rest of the committee. But are there novel additions to the guidelines that are not receiving the focus and or discussion that you thought they would when you guys were writing this? And if so, which parts of the guidelines do you think deserve more emphasis and recognition?
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'll say, I, in my first thought, it seems that the appropriate novel uh, recommendations have received the appropriate level of attention. Some have been a little controversial, as we've expected. So I, I don't right off the bat think, oh no, everyone seems to be ignoring a certain recommendation. Uh, I will say, I. I'm interested, I I don't know how to find this out, but to see how much the value statements are potentially being used uh, by payers to hopefully where we say something is a good value that they do not put up barriers to use. In fact, one of the things I write about in editorials occasionally is uh, I feel if we give something and it shouldn't just be for heart failure, it should be all conditions, but if if we have a life-prolonging therapy we give it a top-level recommendation. And the value is also a very good value. There should be almost no barrier for the patient to use this. Just because it's an expensive therapy, if it provides an excellent value, if it provides a, you know through a great outcome, um, there should not be barriers for patients to be using these. And, and we could potentially use the guidelines uh, like that to reduce or eliminate copays for patients. Again, I, I don't know how much of those value statements are being taken up, and that's something I'm interested to find out. Another area that um, I'm interested in that we did discuss, it, it didn't have the highest level of recommendations, but that's for patient reported outcomes. That's primarily because our data is relatively uh, new in this area. You know, the question is how much patient reported outcomes should we be doing? And um, can we use those to improve care, I think are excellent questions. And so I'm not sure how much interest there is in the patient reported outcomes. That's, that's another area. I'd love to find out to whether the guidelines are making an impact in terms of their uptake.
2: That's super interesting, Dr. Heidenreich, about um, trying to understand how the value statements might be affecting payers. Do you know if anyone either from your committee is going to be studying that? or do you know of any other independent groups that, Are interested or planning to study that?
3: Yeah, I don't know of a formal investigation of this. I think there's a lot of groups tracking how payers um, are adjusting what they're doing and um, always trying to find out how these are being used. But, you know, we'd love to try to come up with a way to study this to get some feedback from the payers uh, regarding what they find useful and how we can improve our guidelines for them as well, in addition to the practicing clinician.
2: So our next question is about anything that you think might have been left out from the guidelines.
3: Yeah. So I'd say in general, when it comes to areas with high quality evidence, I don't think so. Our goal was not to leave anything out. So. Where there's been published large randomized trials, I would say no. But I am a little disappointed that we cannot have more, uh, and this is an ACC recommendation now, is to not have things solely based on expert opinion. They really want to go away from expert opinion uh, recommendations and have it all based on strong published, ideally randomized trial data which is great for a lot of decisions about whether or not to use a treatment. But there's so many questions I think all of us have about, um, well, what drug should I start with? You say there's four drugs. Should I start with one? Which order should I go in? Should I try to get them all on small doses and go up? And right now we're basically silent on that because we don't have the clinical trial data. But I think things like that are where it'd be great to have some um, experts, albeit not necessarily, you know, that not that everyone is completely in agreement with them, but if there is a strong interest in still having that expert opinion for a lot of these different aspects of practice for which we don't have and, and very well may not have clinical trial data. So, you know, if you're asking what was left out, it was intentional that that was left out but then perhaps it needs to be in a separate document, not in a guideline document. But I think there clearly is that need for for those aspects of practice where we don't have data and we would like expert opinion. That's very interesting.
0: That, that is a common question that I think a lot of us have. I know we discuss clinically at the hospitals, discussed a lot, for instance, on social media and Twitter about what's the best way to get the four foundational life prolonging medicines on board. And that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between providing expert opinion versus kind of just going with what we have with the data, which right now are limited in kind of those nuanced details. Speaking of clinical implementation, the guidelines have a section entitled clinical implementation, which states that guideline recommendations are only effective when followed by both practitioners and patients, and that adherence to recommendations can be enhanced by shared decision-making. Given your work, Dr. Heidenreich, Get With The Guidelines program, do you find the release of the new clinical practice guidelines is met with a renewed interest in joining Get With The Guidelines program? Um, Or is it too soon to tell or any kind of other thoughts related to that?
3: Yeah, I'd say it's probably a little too soon to say what was the impact of this guideline. But my experience in general is that the hospitals do get excited about when there's new recommendations. They want to be sure that they're following those. And I do think that then uh, gets them more interested in programs uh, sponsored by the American Heart Association, ACC, HFSA. Um, including the Get With a Guidelines program. So I think it does uh, help the organizations in in getting interest for their quality programs.
0: Similarly, do you have a general sense of the timeline in which you expect guidelines uh, to have a meaningful impact on changes in clinical practice? And what steps do you think we need to take to improve timely and widespread guideline adoption? Or even kind of what strategies have you guys talked about as this was rolling out this past spring?
3: Yeah, I think an excellent question. As you know, there's been... Studies in the past suggesting that this often takes, you know, 15 years at times for a full adoption after the initial trial showing that a certain treatment is effective. Obviously, we want to speed that up. I think it has sped up. I, I think future work will say that like SGLT2 inhibitors, I think will be much more widely adopted uh, in a much shorter time uh, than that 15-year benchmark. Um, but I think we need to do better. And I think one of the problems is just the way care has been provided in the past, where there's a particular, a single provider, often a cardiologist or maybe a primary care physician who is managing the patient and seeing them and, and making adjustments whenever they come in to be seen. But typically, there's so many other things going on that you may not have time to address. Now, I've admitted very complex heart failure care that's required to get you on all four foundational therapies, particularly for those with reduced ejection fraction. So heart failure care has become much more complex um, and time-consuming to get people on those therapies. So we need to use different parts of uh, the health system, in my opinion, and I think we can make a big difference by using other providers advanced practice providers or even pharmacists to help the team we'll say the heart failure team provide the cure um so um in fact the within the va system the pharmacists have full practice authority to prescribe if told by our physician we want them on heart failure therapy they can just go ahead and follow some guideline based protocols and get patients on those therapies get them stabilized and return them back to the team and so having additional practitioners whose maybe all their job is is to get people on foundational heart failure therapy i think we could be much more effective as a system and speed that process up and allow the cardiologists to focus on more complex clinical problems rather than just titrating medications So I think there is a potential to improve it there through the much greater reliance on other providers within the health system.
2: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for that input. In future iterations of the guidelines, what do you think might be different, innovative, or just more emphasized as time goes on?
3: Yes, uh, great question. Um, I I think we'll be learning more about What works with preserved ejection fraction? I think uh, particularly the SGLT2 inhibitors, we're going to have more trials coming out there, and I could see some of those recommendations being upgraded from the current 2A recommendations, which they are. I expect we'll also get some more data on how successful uh, mitral clipping is in heart failure. I think we had some divergent trial results, and uh, I think we'll have that clarified. Um, Some of the other therapies, such as the cardiac contractility modulation or CCM, which is promising, but we don't really have hard outcome data indicating that it's successful. I think we'll probably have more data there. And then I think, hopefully, we'll also get some data on how best to screen patients for potentially for what we might say stage B or asymptomatic uh, reduced ejection fraction for which we would have treatment. or Figuring out how to find if we have recommendations for finding those with undiagnosed heart failure. Uh, maybe their symptoms are attributed to pulmonary disease or something else, and uh, they're not yet on optimal heart failure medical care. So, again, you know, you say this, um, but I'm always surprised uh, five years later about which direction the field has gone. You know, for a while we were saying, oh, EF is not important. Not that I I was saying that, but that uh, we should just get everyone on all these therapies. But I think the more and more we look, we realize, well, there is a stronger and stronger benefit in the lower EF patients. And it may be that certain therapies are truly only beneficial in the lowest ejection fraction patients. So I've sort of seen EF, you know, initially it was very popular and then people say, oh, let's try to get rid of ejection fraction. And now I think it's coming back very hard to predict how we'll be viewing it in uh, in five or 10 years from now.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Heidenreich. This has been absolutely incredible. It's been a whirlwind tour of just, you know, from the beginning, how the committee is even formed, how the data is reviewed to all of the various nuances. And we're just, we're so happy we we're able to learn all of this from you. It's definitely not something we talk about very often. And yet the guidelines are very influential um, in all of our practice patterns, especially for trainees. So this has been especially helpful. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. And we really look forward to seeing the next iteration of the guidelines in five or 10 years.
3: Well, thank you. I enjoyed speaking uh, with both of you today and uh, a a wonderful series you're putting together.